Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, the co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. March, Tyler, is National Women's History Month in America. It is. And a month dedicated to uh, highlighting the contributions women have made to our great country and uh, to celebrate the challenges they have had to overcome that's right. Successfully to get to a point of some progress and meaningful contribution in this society, I would say uh, we can't do it without them. Oh, I mean, the entire way, Peter, the entire history of America. I mean, it's, it, you know, you go back and you look at those great paintings in the Capitol building, you know, of the of the founders. You'll, you'll notice that there is a, a type there. <laughs> We're missing uh, some folks. And uh, there's no doubt about it in the history of our nation, women have been excluded from public life, oftentimes from participating as full citizens, yet have contributed the whole damn way through. And uh, what's really cool about this month is we get to reflect on this on our show, on how women have made an impact in the coastal and ocean space in particular. And there's a great story there to tell. There is indeed, and and uh, I have to say, I'm, it's a real privilege and an honor for us to have on Helen Brawl. Now, Helen, for our ISPN listener community, will recognize Helen as the host of the North Coast Chronicles podcast, Tales of the Great Lakes, one of my favorite shows. I love it. But she is also a serious and high-level coastal professional, serving as the executive director of the U.S. Committee on the Marine Transportation System, an organization that advises the executive branch of government on transportation, marine transportation related issues. Helen has a stellar career as a coastal professional, if I can use that term, and uh, she's gonna talk to us today about Women's History Month and about uh, the role women play in uh, the professional world we all care about. And I think she's going to take us to school a little bit. That's, I'm, I'm sure <laughs> she will. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, it's going to be a great show today. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, hello, Helen Bro. How are you today? Hey, fellas. I'm good. How are you? Well, it must be a little odd to be uh, doing a show about uh, Women's History Month with a couple of guys. <laughs> well, I, 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 I did just... want to say it is very, I think, brilliant of you to have a woman on. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, and well, we were I don't know about, about this, but I am a woman. Yes. And, um, and um, you know, I think uh, Women's History Month is, is something worth talking about. It is indeed. And, and uh, I, I wonder if you might enlighten us a little bit about the origins of Women's History Month. How did we, when did we begin to uh, openly acknowledge the contribution of women in history in America? When did this, when did this month get designated and, and, and what was the driving force? Well, <clears throat> I, I, it's interesting because 
um, like you said, women have been involved in the uh, development of our country and the development of businesses, um, but we kind of forget that they were. Um, and I did go back and take a look at Women's History Month, and it actually started out as a day, um, and it's been traditionally March 8th, so the beginning of March generally. Uh, and the first acknowledgement of it was International Women's Day, celebrated in the U.S. in 1911. Wow. But then there's really like n no nothing that comes out after that until 1978 when uh, a school district in Sonoma, California participated in Women's History Week, and they designated it around March 8th. Wow. Now, what was the first president that issued the first proclamation declaring the week of March 8th to be National Women's History Week. This is a multiple choice, I hope. <laughs> Me too. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, a, yeah. I, uh, I'm going to guess. Do you have yes. a guess, Tyler? Uh, uh, well, I'm, I have to say, I mean, I'm trying to piece it together based, I mean, Helen, are, did you leave some breadcrumbs for us in there? Yeah, I, I, I did. Okay, so it's after World War II, after the Korean War, hmm. after the Vietnam War, okay, and all the way in February of 1980, if you can remember the president at that time, I think it was it Ronald Reagan, President Jimmy Carter. Oh, Jimmy Carter in 1980. 1980 issued a proclamation declaring the week of March 8th to be National Women's History Week. Oh man, Carter, yeah, yeah, visionary. So, but, yeah, and then six years later. 14 states just declared March as Women's History Month. So really the states came through first. Huh. And then uh, in March of 1987, President Ronald Reagan signed the proclamation dedicating March as Women's History Month. Right. So the first one was 1911, and the first proclamation came out in 1987. And since then, we've been celebrating Women's History Month. I think, though, What's an interesting, I always, I, I'm interested in how women served in the military. Well, there's in any profession, really. So, I mean, we know the stories of women participating in the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. But, you know, it wasn't until 1917, just before the start of World War One, when women could legally enlist in the military. So it took until 1917. Although, in some respects, I'm thinking, gee, it could even have been after that. But no, 1917. And on that very day, there's a woman by the name of Loretta Perfectus Walsh. Wow. She enlisted in the Navy Reserve. She still holds the, well, I guess she would always, when she is considered the first, uh, the first Navy petty officer. Hmm. So, 1917. And then in World War One. Believe it or not, there's 35,000 women officially served. Now, I actually thought that was a high number. And they mostly wow. served in the Army, but also in the Navy. But then the number jumped way up in World War II. About five times that amount were in World War II. Hmm. And as a practical matter, I think that was just a practical matter, Harry Truman, President Harry Truman, in June of 1948, he first recognized women as full members of the armed forces. Now, that's a big deal. Hmm. Because up until that time, they were not getting the same benefits as their male counterparts. So they finally, because of Harry Truman, were able to claim the same benefits as the men. And also uh, women could make a career, really, in the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. 
So a lot of dedication there, but they weren't getting the same uh, the share, the same uh, the same benefits. So I think um, uh, we we just take it for granted that women would have gotten that. But it took till 1948. But still, uh, I, I'm I mean, considering we don't have an equal rights amendment, you know, I think uh, nope. that's pretty cool. No doubt about it. And what's incredible to me is to think about these changes in the decades over which they're taking place. And um, Helen, can you tell me what it was like for you personally uh, as a little girl uh, who, you know, obviously very intelligent, you have ambitions to get involved in the world and uh, make your mark. Um, who did you, did you look up to, to women of history? Uh, were there women in your life or people in your life that, uh, it f helped you feel empowered or help talk me through that? Do you know, no, um, uh, there weren't women that there were jobs that appealed to me or adventures that appealed to me. And I, I guess I never really thought that I couldn't have those adventures or those jobs and or or travel where people traveled i mean i was certainly you know a, a youngster of television right and flipper right and who didn't love, love flipper fl i love right? flipper yes yeah, of course i, mean, I love yeah. i love those mono masks that like those oval masks that they wore on that show very cool yeah <laughs> <laughs> just a cool mask yeah yeah man and um so those are the kind of things that appealed to me um so but i have to be honest it wasn't like a woman because it, even in television or movies, women's positions were tended to be pretty token. You know, they had to be um, like uber sexy and um, cute and clever. Uh, and anybody who was strong tended to be, I don't know, dismissed a little bit. That's my perception. I'm sure it wasn't always the case. Um, so sad to say, I really didn't have women that I looked up to that she had like to be like them. Um, except if they had a glamorous life, then I thought, gee, I'd love to have a glamorous life. But, <laughs> you know, whatever that means, right, right, at the time when you're a little kid. But when but it's, but I was thinking a little bit about this. And because I'm not technically an oceanographer, I got to say that up front. I'm not technically a marine affairs person, per se. Um, I have an undergraduate degree in coastal geology. Yes, I have a master's degree in Great Lakes, uh, land and water use policy, sure. But I am a, I am kind of a classic policy wonk. Uh, and I have had the privilege of doing some science work. I have worked on a research vessel out of Ohio State, worked on the Hero Board, bad weather, great weather. Um, and I have observed really great scientists. But I will never, uh, there's just so many brilliant, capable people out there in whether it's limnology or oceanography uh, for me to say that I'm really um, one of them. However, um, because I'm a policy person, I do think about these things. Uh, and when I went to Washington, D.C., I don't think I had a vision for myself in a job. Think about this. And the reason I mention this is because I talk to undergrads and I mentor a lot of them and I mentor a lot of women undergraduates. And the sense of self is amazing. The sense of purpose, the sense of goals and direction is amazing. I'm so impressed every day. Uh, I didn't, I don't think I had that for myself, but I got very lucky at Ohio State and I was in grad school there in natural resources and someone suggested that I apply to the National Sea Grant College Fellowship Program in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. 
And um, that was in 1983. I was accepted as an alternate. I got lucky because two offices uh, that had applied for fellows didn't get them. So it was myself and somebody else. And one was on the Hill and one was uh, in NOAA. I got the job on the Hill in a committee that no longer exists. It was the Merchant Marine and Fisheries Committee, mm -hmm. and I worked specifically on the subcommittee on oceanography. Wow. And that subcommittee doesn't exist anymore. But, you know, that's fine. Fisheries things went off to the fisheries and natural resources. Maritime um, stayed within a transportation area. So um, I you know, did have the privilege of reauthorizing the National Sea Grant Program, Aquaculture Act, um, some other things. And, and it wasn't until I did that that I felt a sense of, like this is this is what I really want to do. So, uh, go ahead. Well, the early 1980s, then uh, that first exposure to serious policy level work on the Hill. Uh, I happened to work on the Hill as well uh, a little bit later in the 1980s on the Energy and Commerce Committee. Wow, uh, you guys might have crossed paths. Well, I think I was I was a little bit later uh, toward the I, end I of the decade. So, I think yes, Helen I was probably gone. But uh, to being exposed to that world of policy and power, um, how did that shape your uh, self understanding and your career path in terms of what you thought you were interested in doing and what you thought you could accomplish? I think that on the policy side it felt a little less clear than I saw my colleagues um, who were more science driven and were kind of had their, their nose directed towards NOAA. There, now I will say on the Hill, there were women who were chiefs of staffs and offices who are running committees. So I saw that and appreciated their mentorship along the way. But when I went to the Hill or went to the National Sea Grant College program, now called the John Knauss uh, Sea Grant College program. In 1983, there were 15 of us, of which seven were women, which I think is pretty amazing. That's almost 50%. Now in 1979, when it started, there were 10 fellows, only which of two were women. Mm. And the next year, six fellows, two women, 10 fellows, three women, 13 fellows, two women. And 83, it changed, and they started to gain a bit more of that 50% area. What's interesting is that it took 10 years to see a big jump. Hmm. Um, so if, if uh, 79 had two, two women out of 10, 20%, and in 1999, there were 30 fellows, 19 of which were women. So that's, that's what, three quarters right. were women. Yep. And then if you go to um, even, let's say, um, like 2009, out of 46 fellows, 30 were women. And um, that was about the time that uh, I was working in the Department of Transportation, and I was seeking out to apply to have these fellows. And it seems to me that when I first started, there were a handful of women and a lot of guys. And nowadays... There's a lot of women and a handful of guys. Now, that's just, it's not a statistic of any sort, right? I mean, uh, it doesn't mean that there's more women. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, anything statistically in a national average or for women in STEM. Mm -hmm. But I am impressed with the number of women. I am impressed with the number of women who continue to pursue a career where they can change policy. And um, I, I see now when I 
when I first, when I got out of the, the program, the, the Canals Fellowship and at the end of 1983 or the beginning of, of 1984, I got a job at NOAA. I was a Fed and I went to the Coastal Management Program. I got to do actually Great Lakes Coastal Management Programs, which was pretty Outs- cool. Outstanding. Thank you. Um, what I noticed is that it was a lot of just guys running everything. There were not, there. Were, you had analysts, maybe some program people doing reviews, but all of the people at NOAA, now don't quote me on this because I didn't actually go around and, and, and count all of them. But in 1984, 85, it felt as if it was a lot of men, a lot of white guys um, in charge of everything. All the programs, all the research, everything. Right. And myself and a couple of friends noticed this and felt strongly that, well, wait a minute. How how do the women kind of break that glass ceiling? That was when I, I first heard the term glass ceiling. Um, and also, the guys, the term actually, believe it or not, to, at that point, the, the term networking was really starting to take hold. You're supposed to network. But it seemed like guys networked or knew how to network. Now, some of that could have been born out of, you know, uh, being joining clubs or, you know, sports or something that they kind of networked. You go, you know, the idea of getting on the golf course and networking to do business. But women, I don't know where we, we didn't really think we had a place like that. And so at that time in 1984, myself and uh, two women, Becky Roots, and Susan O'Malley Wade, both were in my class of the Canals Fellowship for 1983. Wow. We sat around um, in somebody's apartment in D.C. with wine and cheese. I'm sure I brought the cheese and the wine because <laughs> you have to. How can you think about wine and cheese in front of you? And said, you know, why don't we, why don't we, kind of gather some folks together and network? Let's make our own network. And that is how. Um, the Women's Aquatic Network was established. I see. Yeah, it was really quite that simple. But I will tell you, the enthusiasm and interest by women to participate was clear from day one. From day one. And it's still an incredibly strong organization today. So from 1983, when you're dipping your toe into the professional environment and noticing the absence of a strong network of professional women uh, to advance careers, discuss career choices. To 1985, two years later, you and a, a group of motivated women formed this Women's Aquatic Network, which still is going on today. And uh, for folks who are listening at a computer, uh, Google up Women's Aquatic Network. It's womensaquatic.org. It's an impressive organization and something to be proud of. After 37 years, Helen, this is going strong. Uh, tell us about the network and how it, what you thought you were hoping to accomplish in 1985 and how it has, has evolved uh, since then. We, at the time, we thought, let's do, have lunches. I mean, we, we weren't sure how to do it. We thought, let's bring in experts to talk about what they do. And in the beginning, we brought folks in from NOAA, particularly because that was our network at the time, to talk about uh, actually women in NOAA actually said bringing in some guys and talked about what do you you know where do you think the growth is for women um can we break this glass ceiling what is the glass ceiling uh it just happened to be that we were at noaa uh and i happened to have been involved with a lot of folks who were into uh the marine affairs so that's where it began i'm sure there were perhaps comparable um, thoughts and ideas in other organizations at the same time 
but um, we did simple things. We would we would uh, have like an after work get together on the hill. It was quite easy to get a room on you know in Rayburn or Longworth on the House side or on the Senate side, um, and we at the time were allowed to bring in wine, <laughs> you know, or of or course. soft drinks um, and. We'd have, you know, some, some nosh. And so people could, we would have people come in and talk. We also would have lunches regularly, like once a month. Uh, lunches were literally like going to the Rotary. We'd all meet and we'd have people talk. It was the first time I heard women, and these were young women, uh, talking about their research. Um, could have been just from their immediate education. Talking about the research, talking about um, really fun, interesting topics. And we tried to have women talk about the topics. And I think back now, just the the, it, the room would be filled. Uh, you know, nowadays people don't have time to take a lunch because everybody's watching their 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 email. But it was so fun. Hey, I gotta ask Helen because one of the things that I think is really interesting about Juan is that. Is the word aquatic because it's a de-siloed word. It uh, it includes uh, young, not necessarily young women professionals from aqua across uh, the aquatic space, which is an again an interesting term. Uh, who was showing up uh, there in those early days? You know, were these? Did you have a diverse set of folks coming? And I would just be interesting interested to hear some initial observations about that glass ceiling, maybe in, in different sectors of uh, the community. Well, diversity with regard to marine affairs backgrounds, certainly not diversity with regard to uh, race, color, creed. Uh, and we would have folks from fisheries or folks from um, uh, the navigation side or or uh, me, I was still really interest, interested in the maritime affairs. Now, the term, the reason it's called the Women's Aquatic Network is I got to admit it was me. I raised my hand and said, you cannot have something called Marine because I'm from the Great Lakes. That's just not going to play. And someone <laughs> jumped up and said, can we That's do aquatic? Right. And I said, okay, I can live with that. So I, I was the pain in the, you know what, about it. But um, I, I probably didn't really need to be. But, you know, there's a whole section of inland waterways, inland rivers and waterways that tend to be forgotten Absolutely. that are hugely important um, to the nation. A huge, you know, incredible resources in so many ways um, and um, not just our oceans and coasts. The pipeline of, of women professionals coming into uh, uh jobs at NOAA or in STEM, generally science, technology, uh, engineering, and mathematics is really been improving. It's still, I, I think there's always room for improvement, but currently, according uh, to the U.S. Census Bureau, about 42% of undergraduate degrees in math and statistics are awarded to women these days. Uh, in the physical sciences, almost 40% awarded to women. Uh, computer science, less, somewhere around 20%. But in the biological sciences, 60%, Tyler, of the undergraduate degrees in America uh, in the biological sciences are going to women these days. And I have to think, Helen, when you look at the, the long-term tr uh, trends here uh, in terms of uh, women in undergraduate and graduate degree programs, are you hopeful that women will occupy a greater percentage or an even percentage of the professional workforce uh, in ocean and coastal or aquatic uh, 
issues. Sure. But I have to confess that working in Washington is like working in a bubble. It doesn't necessarily represent the national averages. Uh, I was reading an article in Oceanography, which is an interesting um, periodical. They had an article from 2015. Now, that's already a number of years ago. But they were saying that the first women really joined oceanographic expeditions in 1960, um, which, you know, count, was a, a, certainly a parallel to the women's movement at the time. And to your point, female representation in academic research has increased since then. But the ratio of women to men at higher ranks in, ocean, in oceanography still lags. So I think that is the question. It's a, it, 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 and this is a question for diversity in general. It's not just getting people into the profession. It's getting them into positions of leadership and decision-making. And that is where we see still a tilt towards men rather than women. So like you said, there's a boatload of women coming out of biological sciences. And as I mentioned, just as a parallel, the National Sea Grant College program has more women in it. Now, hmm. maybe more women apply. However, there's a strong contingent of women. And in Washington, D.C., I think I get to see more women in positions of authority. Ironically, a couple of years ago, I did a uh, kind of did a little analysis of federal agencies, women to men, just a gender comparison on behalf of uh, women in sci uh, shipping and, and um, a trade association um, and noted that um, State Department, um, uh, Education Department, uh, I think State Department had the most women in it, period. Now, this is not women in authority, just the number of women, period. There is more in State Department. The military services were towards the lower end, um, although the the um, military academies were doing quite well, really pushing, you know, pushing into the 30% and even more. I think Coast Guard Academy is now at least 40% women and probably growing. Um, but um, I found it interesting that in, like for me in transportation, Department of Transportation had the least women in it of any department in the entire uh, government which mm -hmm. kind of shocked me because I look around and it seems like there's a lot of women. If you go to NOAA uh, and um, well, when people went into the building at NOAA up in Silver Spring to the campus up there, um, everywhere you looked, you'd see just, well, great women. Now, partly I would m recognize a lot of them. Uh, I, 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 th I think in Washington, women are taking strong positions. I mean, look at the administrator of NOAA's been a woman a number of times and uh, chief of staffs and mm -hmm. people in authority even now. So um, that's changed. But nationally, um, I think in academia, women are not, uh, they still have, there's a minor number of women in academia, despite um, progress that's been made. I see. You know, we, we've had the privilege of uh, talking to Nicole LaBeouf a couple of times who is the uh, administrator of the National Ocean Service now at NOAA, and just a dynamic uh, leader and someone I have incredible respect for. Uh, she's in a high position in leadership, and I've got to think, I'm just to throw out another name that I'm sure you've come across, uh, Dr. Nancy Foster, uh, who in the 1980s was the director of the Sanctuary and Reserves Program at NOAA. 
uh, and became uh, the chief of the National Marine Fisheries Service Office of Protected Resources in, in, in the 1980s. Did you and Nancy cross paths by any chance, or have you and Nicole crossed paths professionally in your career? Well, I do work with Nicole daily. She is a member of the committee I work with, that work for, um, and I have to agree, she's an incredible leader. She is, uh, nobody promotes her programs better. Nobody believes in her people more. She's really terrific, yeah, running the National Ocean Service, and that's the area in which I engage because that's where you have charting and mapping and geodetics and uh, tides and currents. So naturally, that's an area in which I would engage. So yes, um, to Nancy Foster, I have to say, I get quite sentimental about her. I actually <laughs> feel pretty sad. We worked in the same building when I was at at NOAA back in 1984, 85, 86. Um, one of the nicest people you will ever have met. The, the, naming a, a research boat after her was just not enough. Um, she just incredible. Uh, she really led NOAA into the modern era of coastal resource management and conservation. Um, her passing was a real loss. But there are a lot of other women as well um, that have you know, taken the lead. So you cannot talk about women in um, coastal and oceanographic research without talking about Dr. Sylvia Earle. And I will say that she was an inspiration to me. I'll admit up front, I do not know her personally. Um, we invited her to be on a kind of a VIP board with the Women's Aquatic Network very early on, and she agreed. She has um, certainly been a leader in the field. Um, she was you know, one of the first to really be engaged in the kind of oceanographic research that um, that um, kind of pushed the boundaries of oceanography and changed it from just um, just a man's world. And uh, so she she's had seven thousand hours beneath the surface of the ocean in sixty ep uh, expeditions. She's has universal respect for the scientific community. Um, certainly has made it possible for women to remain in the forefront of ocean exploration. Um, and she is just as, uh, just as um, impressive um, and influential today as she's been, I mean, gosh, over all her years uh, in, in service. So there's, but there, I, I had to I confess, I went back to try to look, kind of fun to see when women really started to be get engaged in oceanography. And I note that in 1872, the British Challenger expedition sailed around the globe on a voyage to study and sample the world's ocean. But there were absolutely no women on board, 243 people, all men. Women were not allowed on ships for research or any other kind of purpose. And um, it, it, nearly a century before the Challenger, though, a woman by the name of um, Jean Beret sailed around the world on a scientific expedition on her own. And she disguised herself as a male assistant on a 1766 voyage led by the French admiral and explorer Louis-Antoine de Bougainville to document plants and ecosystems. But So she was really the first woman to circumnavigate the globe, but she had to pretend she was a guy to do it. So if you look at it from that perspective, we've come a long way, obviously. But it took a long time between the late 1800s to, let's say, 1980. Um, when we started to see a, a huge punch up in the number of women in STEM, number of women in the business. So I, I do want to give shout outs to some people that I, I, I'm really impressed with. And um, in August of 2019, I was on the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Healy. Yes. Uh, and at that time, it was just an amazing experience. Most of the researchers and the scientists on board were women. Most of them were young women, 
and not necessarily those who were still in school and wanted to volunteer their time. These were women who were out and about, had a full-time job, and got permission to take time off to really um, um, practice their craft on board a ship. So, um, so that was kind of fun. Uh, and um, the captain of the Healy was um, a woman. Her name was Mary, is Mary Ellen Durley. She was the uh, the captain of the of the Healy, and I. She might have been the first woman captain, and then, but interestingly, her second in command was a woman, and that's Commander Michelle Shallop. Now, let me just give a shout out to Michelle because it turns out, she is actually from the Great Lakes, and she's actually from an island in the Great Lakes called Nebish Island. And I asked her, you know, how is it that you kind of got into the Coast Guard? And she said, well, frankly, you know, my family moved to Nebish Island and my parents ran uh, a passenger ferry and a, a to, you know, across there. So then I got my license to run the passenger ferry and it seemed like a natural progression um, to go into the Coast Guard. But this was a pretty, this is, this is no minor ship. Uh, it's a ship uh, traversing the Arctic and doing research. Um, where virtually all of the crew were men, and uh, Captain Durley and Commander Shallop were in charge. That was kind of fun to work with them. But they're not the only ones um, to to be the first. I had the privilege um, at NOAA's uh, 200th anniversary of the NOAA Corps. That's the those are the folks that are in uniform running the ships the NOAA ships, and actually all the uh, planes as well. And uh, had the opportunity to sit next to a woman. And here's the thing that bothers me about this. I never heard of her. I didn't know that this was the first woman who ran the NOAA Corps, the first woman of color to run the NOAA Corps. Uh, and I didn't know it till I sat next to her uh, at this dinner. Wow. And who was it? It was Rear Admiral Evelyn Fields. Yes. She's retired now. Yes. Um, she struck me um, as a woman who uh, was um, strong, strong leadership skills, certainly had the skills to be a NOAA commissioned officer and to lead the entire Office of Marine and Aviation Operations. Wow. And yet, I had not heard of her. So talk about a woman who inspires, um, and yet hadn't heard of her, but I felt quite honored to, to get to know her. So here we are, um, still having a lot of firsts for women. In just 2019, NOAA reported that they had the first all-female crew on a hurricane reconnaissance um, air flight. That's cool. Sure, but it's 2019. Well, yeah, the time you know, is and why, cool. And why are the... we still, you know, I mean, no one goes around and says, gee, there were three guys who ran, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, and let me just say up front, I am very proud of NOAA because NOAA has an incredibly good record of supporting women and women in leadership positions. So let me make that clear. The point I'm really trying to make is that it's still a lot of firsts going on and there's still um, a lot of room to grow. So while there are a lot of women in undergraduate and graduate degrees in the biological sciences, we need to see them go from entry-level jobs to mid-level jobs to leadership positions because there are more women than men in school, but not in the job market, not on the, not in the job market. And 
Um, that is the challenge, keeping them in there for the long run so they can get in positions of leadership. Well, uh, that's that's a, a really excellent piece of advice and leads perfectly into what I wanted to talk about next, which is kind of where is the glass ceiling today? Um, where are women facing the pushback of uh, you know institutional uh, bias and and all of the other kind of social strictures that have uh, prevented e equity here? Uh, where is that today? In your experience, mentoring young women and, and people starting off their careers, could you tell us about that? There are a lot more opportunities for women um, than there were certainly when I went to Washington in 1983. Um, the key is uh, to keep them in the profession, but you asked specifically about glass ceilings. There still is um, some, some um, uh, kind of being elbowed out. Um, it, I think it probably depends on the environment. I mean, I, I, I don't come from academia, but academia can be very competitive. And in academia, there are more men than women in the fields. Um, and I'm not sure if that is because of, you know, um, a sense of competitiveness um, or that women have different priorities. And um, I think the real glass ceiling right now is for minorities in the biological sciences. I mean, if you think there's few women in university jobs, high-level jobs, or leadership jobs, there's, a, there's hardly any African-American women in it. Um, so I think that is the new glass ceiling. How do we move beyond that? Now, I will confess there are stories that of women researchers on board vessels, and this is just across the board, of being harassed. Right. And, and it's important to note the difference between harassment and assault. So assault is a crime, period. Um, harassment is not good, but it is a cultural, um, it is the way in which a business, it's a culture, a business culture. And, um, and it can lead to assault, but in addition, it perpetuates a sense of, of, of women not being safe, having a sense of well-being, um, certainly on a ship. So I really admire those women who've worked very hard to get in leadership, leadership positions on a ship. They can change that culture. I just think that that is so important and particularly going forward because let's be real, ladies and gentlemen, uh, every quadrant of our society has had uh, a, a lot of work to do in this area. Um, but I think that in, that there are some coastal uh, professional silos that are particularly, uh, you know, have have a particular lot amount of work to do. Uh, and I'm thinking about like fisheries and I'm thinking about the engineering community where there is progress being made, but there's still a lot more work that can be done. Um, Peter, here on ASPN, we have currently 24 hosts on the network, 16 of which are women and i just want to take a minute on this show since we are talking about women's history month to thank all of them for enriching the network beyond just their show's subject matter but for bringing their perspective as women professional women to the table yep. and i learn so much about not only the the strict uh subject matter that they're covering but also about 
our society, about opportunities and new ways of looking at things. I mean, at the end of the day, we don't do this just because of some, uh, you know, like constitutional, like some abstract reason. It is because we are all better off when we allow merit and uh, ach achievement be one in a fair and equitable way. Yeah. And that's the that's the way this system's supposed to work. And uh, I just I think that, you know, we are better when we solve these problems. Uh, Helen, in, when you guys were putting together the Women's Aquatic Network um, and the underlying driving force for that effort, um, it seems to me that one of the reasons this is so important and why uh, why Women's History Month is important is because if we do not open the door to opportunity, regardless of gender, sexuality, race, creed, the other standards that we often fail to fulfill in terms of opportunity, that what we're losing here is talent and expertise, and we're constraining ourselves as a society. And to me, that's one of the biggest reasons why deliberate attempts to open the aperture for all people, regardless of these secondary classification things that we get hung up on, is just think of how much talent we have left out of the system and how much we have lost in terms of not giving full opportunity to all Americans. Well, those same conversations were had last month under Black History Month. Um, it's been shown and proven that diversity in the workplace improves the workplace, um, expands um, the culture of the workplace, um, it's more productive. It's just shown that that makes a difference in a positive way. So whether we're talking about women or any minorities um, who are not being represented in the workplace, um, there's there's um, it, it's kind of similar. Uh, and we have to be careful not to marginalize people because they will leave. Um, and some I read that someone called it like death by a thousand cuts. Right. Mm -hmm. You may not say to someone to their face, gee, I, you know, I don't want to work with you, but you will marginalize them in, in different ways. Um, or there'll be subtle put downs or things that are very hard to that are kind of like a form of harassment. Right. It's very hard to quantify that and report it. Um, but at the same time, it does eventually drive a person out. And I think that's um, both shameful and and a shame because yeah. there's. You're, like you said, missing out on a lot of great talent. Yeah, it, it, it is shameful. It's obviously wrong, uh, but the damage done is uh, not just to the individual who is affected, but to the organizations that, uh, that lose the opportunity to work with smart and talented people. Uh, so I, I wonder, Helen, in your career, um, how have you had to respond to circumstances where uh, you felt that there were unfair uh, treatment or sexism in the workplace. Is how have you navigated that as a as a professional in your career? Well, hmm, gosh, <laughs> sometimes well, sometimes not so well. To be perfectly honest, um, I certainly was literally patted on the head by a couple of men over the years if I said something, and they just dismissed me. That I real that really bugs me. <laughs> I mean, dismiss probably is the one way to insult me the most. Um, 
um, or have ask a simple question in a room on something and they they kind of say, oh, don't worry, we'll be done soon. You go, well, if you'd answer my question, is there a question? I'm not just trying to ask you, you know, when we're going to get done so I can go, you know, have a hamburger. So those are the kind of things that, those are subtleties. And I had, I had, I didn't always believe that I, I could fight through it to be, you know, I did. I, I, I cried here and there. I did ask counsel of people. And in the beginning, it tended to be men because those were the mentors I had. And I'm really lucky because they were really great and supportive and said, you know, in some cases, you just got to you know, keep keep plugging along. Right. So part of it is perseverance. And then, and then like anybody, I don't know if it's just women, but at some point you get enough experience under your belt, you get old enough and you realize that, you know what, I'm actually the smartest person in the room. Yeah. That's may not be the one in charge, but I'm the smartest person so in the just room. The merit so, just kind of yeah. speaks for itself. It just, yeah. It just over time. Uh, in the Women's Aquatic Network, uh, tell us a little bit more about the organization. And I think folks can look it up online, but um, is it, how, how many members are there these days? How often does it meet? Is it DC Central is, or is it uh, an organization that has uh, reach around the United States or around the world? Well, to the extent that it's a networking organization and provides opportunities to um, network electronically, then it's available to everybody. It has, it started in D.C., has been D.C.-centric, especially when the networking um, activities were in person. But I'm grateful in some respects that there are so many electronic opportunities to communicate, to learn, to um, get to know folks uh, and they've gotten really, really good at managing, you know, the Zoom applications and going into breakouts and, you know, providing people with questions to get to know each other, to have um, um, uh, um, mentoring opportunities, to meet folks, to connect with people. Uh, I'm. This is a really great organization, and I wouldn't want anybody to think that because they're not in Washington, D.C., that they couldn't take advantage of the network because um, a, not everybody stays in D.C., and the network is huge, really, at this time. I think the, the membership may be just a couple hundred, those who pay dues. Um, but you don't have to be a member to participate. Um, and if there is a fee, it's usually quite minimal. But just recently, there's been uh, presentations by really inspirational women in leadership positions and how to grow your leadership skills, how to, how to make the most of your career. Uh, and then always sidebars in which people are kind of matched with, you, with each other. And you can ask someone a question you might not. Now, I like doing that because I do tend to be a handful of older women who are there. And the younger women ask, they just really want to talk to you. How did you do it? How do you feel? What's going on? Um, I'm having this issue. How do I, how do I navigate this challenge? Uh, I, I, I think that's... Um, it's just really um, productive and helpful. It's a good organization. I, uh, I thank you for telling people to go to the website and, and take a look because they have events all the time. Uh, and um, going on, you know, they always have, have uh, speed mentoring. Even speed mentoring <laughs> uh, by, uh, by uh, application is productive and helpful and interesting. So you don't have to be a member. I encourage you to be one, but you don't have to be because you can take advantage of the resources they provide. That's wonderful. You know, one of the organizations I am most impressed with 
uh, and that Tyler and I have had the uh, opportunity to uh, uh, bring to uh, the fore on our show a couple of times is the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, and just an incredibly important organization with strong women leadership. And I have to say that in that organization and in the Social Coast Forum, which is a NOAA-sponsored event uh, that we had totally. the opportunity to, to uh, attend, these organizations with women leadership look and sound different to me. Um, when we were at the Social Coast Forum, uh, which was an organization uh, led by women, as I said, uh, you get a sense of the importance of relationships in coastal management and community understanding in relation in in coastal management. I thought the perspective was fundamentally different than the kind of bare bones scientific based uh, attempt to understand one or complex, zero. <laughs> yeah, to understand Math. complexity. And I thought that that it was an incredibly powerful component and even more effective in the coastal management sphere. And I, I do think, I don't want to generalize, but I do think that women are generally more sensitive to those kinds of issues and understandings and approaches to issues. And uh, I don't know, is that sexist to, to characterize women in that generic way? But I, it just seems I've experienced it firsthand. What's great about what you just said and the fact that these groups pop up all the time um, is that that sense of networking is more natural and automatic. I think that we've passed that sense of how do we talk to one another? How do we network with each other? other? I mean, that we felt that, that those skills, we didn't have those skills when we started the Women's Aquatic Network. I experienced this both in one and out of one when the women are getting together to talk about their field of interest. I think that the networking is natural and comfortable to them. And that, um, you know, they're using each other to, um, to take advantage of other people's experiences. And it helps them navigate where they want to go next in their life. Um, I, uh, so I agree. I, I, it's not just the one. It's um, I see folks getting together all the time um, to talk about common issues. For a while, um, a girlfriend and I gathered other senior executives in federal government to go have a glass of wine and just say, you know, how's it going? You know, what's the biggest yeah. pain you got to deal with? What's the most rewarding thing you have to deal with? Um, give each other some moral support. Because right. um, when you're in leadership positions, you know, you're out there a little bit more on your own. Um, so, yeah, I agree. I think uh, that that sense of self and that sense of banding together uh, is pretty strong. Yeah. And I, I just a quick shout out to Beth Gibbons, who is the executive director of the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. Uh, and just one of the best run, most innovative uh, coastal advocacy organizations I've seen. Uh, it's incredible uh, for folks out there uh, to look up ASAP is the uh, acronym for it. Uh, but adaptationprofessionals.org is worth a look. And getting to know Beth Gibbons and her program there uh, is something I'd like to, to highlight. Uh, Helen, when you're when you're looking at your career at this uh, point in your life. Uh, you've obviously been in this for many decades. Um, and what what are you hoping to accomplish as a mentor to younger professionals at this point in your career? Uh, what is the most important thing that you are trying to convey to young women professionals entering uh, this profession that we all love of ocean and coastal management? I think, number one, that whatever they're feeling is valid that 
whatever direction they think they want to go, they can pursue. I think it's a bit trite to say you can do whatever you put your mind to. I think it's far more challenging than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if in the sense that if you persevere, yes, eventually you might make it there. The question is to know when to pivot. Um, and those are the kind of questions I ask people um, because there's, there is a lot of questioning. Should I do this or should I do that? And I did that a lot. Uh, and someone once said to me, oh, gosh, I think when I was 28 years old, finishing my fellowship, so I'm 28 years old, and I'm still saying to myself, what do I want to do when I grow up? And my mentor was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Ned Ostenso, who in some respects really started the, the Sea Grant program and got it really running and, and, and going and uh, just a tremendous person, unfortunately passed away many years ago. And basically he said, um, I, I would stop worrying so much about what I do hmm. and think about what I love. He said, I didn't expect that I would become this famous scientist for the work I did in polar regions as a geologist. That just came because I loved my job and we were involved in something. It just was just a lucky fluke in some respects. It wasn't, of course, because it all came as a result of really great research and study. Um, But that's what I try to tell people um, now. Don't worry about a title. Don't worry about, um, be, be less worried about the dollar figure, I mean, you might have to, sure, got it. We have a tendency to say, because as kids, we say to somebody, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you name a title. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a nurse. I want to be a teacher. And that's great. But why do you want to do that? And I do ask people a lot, why do you think you want that? And have them backtrack. What is it that really, uh, do? is that job rewarding to you? In other words, it's not about the title. You can love a job even if it's not what you expected it to be, but because you are supported by the people you work with, because um, it's a it's a friendly environment, or because you do make money. It, it you know kind of lists. I always say to list the five things that really matter to you, not title. What make you know in a job? Yep. And when you do that, it takes the pressure off you. Because people think I have to attain a certain level of stuff. And I would say, is that is that where you're happy? What matters more to you? The paycheck might matter to some people, and that's okay. That's absolutely okay. You might be willing to put up with a lot of different types of things if that's your priority. You know, I, I love that advice. I think it's, it's a great reminder of uh, what leads to contentment and a sense of success in your life uh, isn't about isn't focused and isn't derived directly from your title or even your salary. It has to do with your values and the connection of your values to what it is that you're working on and investing your life's energy and talent and expertise to accomplish. It's such a great reminder and very timely for me, Helen. I appreciate that very much. It's okay to work for the weekend, Peter. (laughs) It is indeed. What a, what a joy to talk to you, Helen, uh, to kick off Women's History Month um, and uh, to talk about this very, you know, can't we just, can't we just open the apertures? What I like to say, think about is, and, and to let, uh, let human beings in our society fully live their lives without regard to these, uh, I don't want, can I, can I, I don't want to say BS, but considerations that should not dictate the future opportunities that people face, whether it's skin color, religious belief, uh, gender, sexuality, 
These are not the important attributes of, of our humanness, uh, particularly in a professional world. This is this is about opening the aperture and welcoming uh, everyone to the table in our society. That's how we're going to be the best that we can be as Americans. So what, what a great joy to talk to you about this issue, Helen. I want to thank you for that. Thank you. I'm honored to be here because there are so many women um, who have achieved so much and um, who are perhaps even more qualified than I to be here, but I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk about them and and uh, the great work they've done. But I agree with you. Let's open that aperture and, and let everybody in because it'll be just so much better. So much better. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Helen Brohl. She is the host of the North Coast Chronicles podcast on ASPN. One of my favorite shows, Helen. I absolutely love it. My wife loves your show. Every time it comes out, she, she's like, is Helen's show out yet? Because so, I always I always learn so much. It's such a, it's such a lovely informative, enriching understanding of the Great Lakes region. I just love the North Coast Chronicles podcast. So thank you for being part of our podcast community. And the uh, uh, and really thank you for taking the time to, to walk us through the importance of Women's History Month and the Women's Aquatic Network. Thank you. Thanks for making time for the subject. Really, it's really great of you guys. And uh, take care. The beaches itself to build their hotels.